1: Disaster officials in New York City knew for years that rising and warming oceans could create a storm surge that would slam Manhattan, and they thought they had a couple of decades to prepare for scenarios fit for an apocalyptic B movie. Then came Superstorm Sandy. In 2012, the Atlantic Ocean gushed into the New York subway, closed the New York Stock Exchange for days, fried the electric grid in much of the region, and caused $70 billion in damage. After the disaster, the cover of Bloomberg Business Week magazine proclaimed, It's global warming, stupid. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about how climate disruption could hit the Bay Area and what is being done to build communities that are prepared and ready to bounce back. This year, we've seen smoke from forest fires and heat waves causing health problems for some people. If El Niño shows up, that could bring another set of challenges for homeowners and the region's roads and water systems. Over the next hour, we'll discuss what individuals, governments, and businesses can do to get ready for wacky weather here in the Bay Area. We'll talk about what is being done to protect poor and vulnerable communities that are least equipped to deal with storms, droughts, and other events that are amplified by burning fossil fuels. Along the way, we'll include questions from our live audience here at the Bay Observatory at the San Francisco Exploratorium. And this program is underwritten by our friends at the San Francisco Foundation and the SEED Fund. We're pleased to have with us three guests. Niall Malloy is former Northern California Director at Communities for a Better Environment and Advocacy Group. Patrick O'Dalini is Chief Resilience Officer at San Francisco. He'll tell you what that means. And Laura Tam is Sustainable Development Policy Director at SPUR, a civic organization. Please welcome them to Climate One Thank you all for coming. Uh, Laura Tam, look around the Bay Area, nine counties. What are the vulnerabilities and risks for climate-related severe events?
3: Well, there's many different types of climate-related events that we all have to prepare for. There's extreme heat. We're expecting climate, the range of temperatures by the end of the century to be four to seven degrees higher than they are today. There's more extreme wildfires. There's sea level rise. There's extreme storms and flooding, which we may get a preview of this year with expected El Nino. Um, and there's, uh, there's the drought that we've been having for so long in California as a preview of changing rainfall patterns and whether or not California is ready um, for, uh, is resilient in terms of its water supply. So all nine counties have kind of a different set of risks to deal with, but all of them could be impacted by these changes in some ways. If the more Bayshore that they have or oceanfront, they'll have more of potentially more vulnerability to sea level rise and the erosion that happens on the coast side. Um, And we all have to prepare for heat and more extreme heat waves, which is something that our built environment has not been built around. We're accustomed to a cooler, foggier places. Only 10% of housing has access to air conditioning. So we have um, a lot cut out for us and we have a lot to do to prepare.
1: If you could live anywhere in the Bay Area, where would you? And price was not an issue, Laura. Uh, where would you live? Where would you move to? Is there is there some place that's better than others?
3: Well, I think that the closer you are to the coast, the more likely you are to have some of that cool natural air conditioning that we yeah. have. Um, although we are expecting and have seen over the last hundred years a decline in coastal fog, I think it's something like we have three hours less each day of coastal fog than we used to have in 1900. So um, the coast is getting warmer, but I think it's still the coolest place. Uh, to, it's the best place to cool off, and it happens to be where I live right now, so I'm pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> like saying,
1: close but not too close. Now, I'm Alloy, some communities uh, are more vulnerable than others, and they often, a lot of times it's the poor communities that are in lowlands near the bay. Mm-hmm. So tell us who's most at risk.
4: Well, who's most at risk is um you know in the Bay Area, about seventy to hundred percent of environmental health hazards are in kind of communities of color like Richmond, Oakland, East Palo Alto, and other places like that. so they have these kind of compounded risks, not only the environmental health hazards of air quality and pollution, which are actually increase with you know um, increased heat and et cetera, but they also have risk of just kind of not having access to resources you know um so the low income communities don't have. Ability to have clean uh, public transit near near them. They have concerns about getting the transportation. There's a a problem around that. Um, Issues of just um, jobs. There's a lot of joblessness, and I think sometimes we talk about climate change. Unemployment is a really part of that too. How can you actually afford to be able to take action um, on behalf of yourself and your family? Um, Access to clean and healthy food. You know, um, healthy food options are a concern in the communities. Um, and also various other health ailments that I think a lot of our communities actually have. You know, if you have an obesity problem or if you have other you know, asthma or other respiratory illnesses or anything like that, like the, that triggers and concerns around how to be able to, to basically move and maneuver yourself out of that. So I think those are some of the issues that we've been addressing in our work, is that some of those social vulnerabilities are just there, and then you compound it with climate change, you're even more at risk. And so, some of the work that we've been trying to do is trying to really assess in these community-based, you know, these community bases where those vulnerable communities are at. Just to trying to figure out what do they actually need, what kind of resources and capacities do they need, and do kind of community-based training and education around those areas to kind of figure out how they need to prepare, how they need to uh, address the risk, and also how to connect it to their real day-to-day lives. You know, climate is a new, like, a, another compounded issue that is facing communities. So, how do you address? this issue when you have other concerns, you know, your health, access to health care, immigration issues, et cetera. How do you talk about climate in that real-time sense? So talking about preparedness and what they need to do to be prepared is pretty much, you know, kind of a, if they, are the 10 type of priorities, it's probably like one of the last priorities of, like, how do we prepare for climate change, you know? So I think the reality is that, you know, the vulnerabilities are are, are existing, and so how do we really move the conversation forward to really get them to talk about climate, understand sea level rise, understand heat issues, talk about the drought, which is a very popular issue, and talk about energy. You know, a lot of people talk about clean energy as well. So how do we talk about those things in relation to the challenges of climate change, but also addressing their social vulnerabilities.
1: We did a program at Climate One called uh, Green uh, Latinos, and and one of the learnings from there was to to frame it climate as a health issue uh, rather than polar bears and grandchildren, but you talk about a health issue that brings it home for a lot of people.
4: I mean, working in Richmond, California, you know, you have the largest greenhouse gas polluter in the backyard, Chevron, and so dealing with that, there's a history of the community knowing about health Asthma risk, health concerns, cancer clusters, breast cancer, and other related issues. And so anything around, they already have those existing elements, talking about climate change is just another thing. It's like, oh, I understand that because I see this big, major polluter. But in other communities, like in Oakland, there's no major polluter like that. You know? So in our, in our work, we talk about diesel, dru- diesel trucks. We talk about particular matter 2.5, which would actually cause, trigger um, asthma-related issues and how they're in close proximity to neighbors. And so we also spin that in terms of how it connects to food. Where does your food come from? A lot of our food just comes in, just gets shipped into it. So we talk about goods and how do our goods come in our community. So when we talk about vulnerabilities, it's really like grounded in like the real-time health issues primarily, but also at the end of the day, it's about really the climate. How do you get to the climate issues through various means?
1: Patrick Gordolini, you are the Chief Resilience Officer of San Francisco. So tell us uh, what you do, what that means, and how San Francisco is getting ready for uh, earthquakes, can't forget about earthquakes, and other things that could uh, be
5: coming our way. I'm really glad you mentioned earthquakes because uh, my other hat that I wear for the city is the Director of Earthquake Safety, and I think that that may be somewhat unique to my colleagues around the globe right now that are being appointed as Chief Resilience Officers, and I think it speaks to the local nature of, of how people are interpreting what resilience means and how are we going to develop a position that in my mind is, is, is kind of part expert on particular subject matters, but I also think it's ridiculous to think that a person in my position would be an expert on all things in this space. So I've think I see, I've always said that I see this role more of as a conduit than anything else. Um, It's not it's not necessarily my job to be the expert on sea level rise. It's my job to know who's working on sea level rise both in the community and in government and try to connect those folks together and try to create that cross communication that doesn't often happen in government silos. So I think that's just as much of a role around that as it is traditional hazard planning and, and things of that nature.
1: And San Francisco, uh, let's talk about San Francisco because uh, Mission Bay, in fact, I remember interviewing uh, Mayor Lee and others saying uh, the city has just put billions of dollars of new property into Mission Bay. It's landfill, it's close to the bay, and yet uh, no real scientists or the city doesn't really know what are we planning for? How many inches of sea level rise by what year? So how can the city, what's the city assumptions and what are we planning for, uh, Patrick Otolini, in terms of sea level rises?
5: Well, I think when you talk about any type of new development, you really get back to what are the minimum standards. And in this case, our minimum standards are governed by the building and planning codes. Um, so I think you've seen, you know, we, we take something like earthquakes, where seismic safety and our modern codes have been around for 30 plus years. We've started to develop our codes in such a way that now we can design for that. I think sea level rise, we're, we're sort of where we are now, kind of like the seismic community was 30 years ago. Uh, we've done some great work in this space. The city is the first city in the nation to pass capital uh, capital planning guidance on on sea level rise, so if we're at the city department going to the well for more capital planning funds, we have to do sea level rise planning. Now, that's just the first bite at the apple. That needs to be translated into what really makes sense for folks. But you mentioned Mission Bay. You know, my, my great-grandfather worked on the railroads in Mission Bay, and there was a reason why there was not buildings there. There was local flooding all the time. It's a bunch of mud. Um, but also, you, you saw the private sector start to respond during the development boom out there. Uh, you'll almost never see a basement in Mission Bay. Uh, Almost every single building is a slab on grade with piles that go down anywhere from 75 to 150 feet. Um, You also saw some innovative things that you've never seen in in, in building in California. You know, people are starting to put the emergency generators on the second floor instead of the first Mm -hmm. floor. And these are all wise decisions, but they're completely voluntary at this point. So I think the big challenge in front of us for sea level rise is to figure out what makes sense to mandate for, say, new buildings. But also, that doesn't really do us a lot of good when most of our cities are already built out. We have to come up with a comprehensive strategy to address existing buildings. And that, in my mind, is the more complicated issue. You know, how do you take an old building and start to, mm-hmm. try to adapt it for sea level rise? It's a lot easier said than done.
1: Lord Tam, one of the missing links here is clear numbers from the scientific community, because scientists have ranges of maybe it'll be this much, and maybe it'll be that much, we're not really sure, it depends on how fast Greenland melts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. so there's scientific uncertainty, and I've talked to developers who say, give me a number, I'll build to that, yeah, but they can't true. get a, a hard number from science, so does scientists need to change, or Talk about that tension and frustration, getting a clear number from science
3: well, I think that you know there is a lot of uncertainty around the trajectory of climate change, and a lot of it depends on how good we are as a world at controlling greenhouse gas emissions and we'd like to stay optimistic and hope that maybe we can control it to a level where like the baseline of sea level rises only reflects the emissions we've already we've already emitted, and that's maybe four to six feet of sea level rise but uh, you know we we right now are, are i mean we we make we could become more hopeful, perhaps about hoping that the world will collaborate. And you see efforts by the U.S. and China and others leading up to Paris this with, this December to try to come up with a way to try to get uh, emissions within that two degrees guardrail, but of safe climate change. But I think that um, you know, there is uh, a lot you can do even within the level of uncertainty that we have. You can adopt a more conservative standard and you can do scenario planning. So developers can say, and this is exactly what Patrick is referring to with the city of San Francisco's capital planning guidelines. It says, what kind of thing are you building? Is this a thing that's gonna be there in 10 years, in 50 years, in 100 years? Depending on the lifespan of the asset or the thing that you, you care about or you're mm-hmm. building, you can design for ranges of sea level rise that we may expect to see by that time. So if you're building, say, a kiosk at a waterfront park, you maybe don't have to build in four to six feet of sea level rise, plus another four feet for a storm surge, because you can rebuild that thing rather cheaply or it's not that important. If you're building Treasure Island or the Bay Bridge, you want to think longer term and you have to be able to respond to a range of scenarios. And I think developers are starting to get a lot smarter about that. You see in various projects around the Bay, people trying to manage for a range of potential future scenarios.
1: Let's talk about the tech uh, community, Silicon Valley, it's the engine, economic engine of the area, in many ways the country and the globe. Uh, uh, Patrick Ottolini, your dad was CEO of Intel. Uh, some people just think that the tech companies are just gonna, they don't think that long term, they're just gonna pick up and move, is that fair?
5: You know, I, I don't think it's fair to categorize tech in that, in that, in that context. I think it's, it's all companies that are starting up right now, all entrepreneurial efforts. There's never a yep. guarantee that they're going to be, be, uh, uh, um, have that long-lasting <laughs> footprint. And, and I also think we're building buildings in a way that's also not meant to last either. Um, I think this conversation has really started to change, though, because I think now you're starting to see the private sector think about business continuity in a way they never did. Um, I think, you know, maybe 10 years ago, there started to be this big push for, for making sure buildings were lead-rated. Um, and, and I think you saw really the the tenant community demanding that you know you weren 't going to lease out this ten story brand new shell of a building unless it was lead platinum, mm-hmm. so it was really the market that drove that. And that was great for, for you know, your typical climate change interventions on a building, for solar, for clean energy, for reducing the footprint of those systems. But then also you have to layer that over with other hazards. We happen to live in earthquake country. So even if you have some beautiful net zero building and it's not ready for a seismic event, well, there goes the continuity of your operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this in San Francisco, particularly with the hotel industry. Um, you know, we've talked to the hotel industry. San Francisco is you know, almost entirely reliant on the tourist, tourism sector here. Um, you know, they have not evaluated their buildings for, for structural damage, and when you start to talk to them about what does it cost for your hotel to be down for a day, or what does it cost for it to be down for a month, you start to see the light bulbs go off. And so I think it's not not necessarily a tech problem. I think it's a, it's a new economy problem. I think if we were... Um, say, having a, an accounting boom instead of a tech boom, you know, we could talk about it that way as well. So I think it's really just a, a, a matter of, of thinking about what smart business actually looks like. That
1: would be very exciting. An accounting, yeah, yeah, accounting, accounting boom, I boom yeah. An accounting boom, You're just joining us, we're talking about resilience in the Bay Area with Patrick Godolini, Chief Resilience Officer of San Francisco, Niall Molloy, former Northern California Director at Communities for a Better Environment, and Laura Tam with Spur, I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Let's talk about what each of you are doing and what an individual can do to be ready for resilience. You know, Patrick Otolini, I think you want everyone to have water and food and earthquake kit. How can people get ready for... We've seen a lot of fires this season that are climate-driven. What, what does mm-hmm. preparedness mean for an individual in a climate context?
5: Uh, well, I think if you're preparing for every disaster, you're well-prepared. And I think that's what it gets down to. I think you look at how... Traditionally, we've messaged around these issues, uh, and this is where I think the Department of Emergency Management in San Francisco deserves a lot of credit. Um, they previously had a website called 72hours.org, and it was very doom and gloom. I mean, even the, mm-hmm. even the, the website itself was black and red and very, very, yeah. uh, very uh, adventurous. <laughs> and, and what they did is they took that and they flipped it, and they said, you know what? Having an emergency kit is actually just as important as me knowing my neighbors across the street those social bonds and those connections that we have in our community are really what get us through. Yes, having supplies is important, making sure your, your foundation is bolted and your house has been retrofitted. I mean, these are all very important, very real steps. But I think this focus, um, you know, when we start to mes- message it in that way, you can turn people off. And I think this message of you're actually probably more prepared than you think. Most folks don't have an earthquake kit, mm-hmm. but most folks have 72 hours with the supplies in their house. So it's just a way of thinking about that. I mean, yeah, there's something to be said for consolidating that and not touching it. Um, but I mean, I think that that's also part of it, too, is, is trying to figure out what it means to really bring our community closer together, because that's how we survive the disaster.
1: Heat's a big one. Uh, we've had some hot days. 2015 will likely be the hottest year on mm-hmm. record on Earth. Uh, Niall Malloy, uh, in 2006, there was a heat wave in California, 126 deaths, uh, two deaths in the Bay Area that were suspected to be heat related of men in their 40s. So it's not just elderly people. So a lot of people... Uh, don't have access to air conditioning. So what's going on in the communities you're in touch with to get ready for for heat that's going to get hotter?
4: Yeah, I mean, a few things. One is just um, you know, thinking about social safety nets. You know, in African-American communities and other communities, there's a church. And so people have been trying to figure out how you create cooling centers in a community so people can actually go to, uh, yeah. physically getting there, having a the cooling center in the community, using a church or a school, some kind of space around that so people can cool off. Another thing is just like, stay hydrated, a lot of water, get out your homes, you know, get a fan. People always want to solarize their home. You, you know, all the different type of things that use um, fans and everything to cool down. Um, there's also been conversations, too, to pretty much just um, try to figure out who has AC in the community. You know, multiple families, like if you're on a city block, who has air conditioning on that city block, who actually can share or come to their you know, share food and things like that. So very, like, community, grassroots, kind of neighborhood-level um, ideas that's been bubbling up. But the cooling centers has been, like, the primary thing, like, trying to find designated locations in a, in a community where people can actually go to, cool down, share food, and have a good time.
1: In fact, research shows that survival... Uh, people who are connected to their neighbors are more likely to survive, uh, Laura Tam, after a disaster than people who are isolated. Research shows that out. Um, I know my neighbors, and we have a, a Google Doc of, of their phone numbers, which will be great unless the Internet's out, which it probably may will be. But um, <laughs> what else can people do to, to, uh, to build resilience and, and that connectedness that helps people in tough times?
3: Well I agree with what Patrick said. I mean any preparing for an earthquake which is what San Francisco and other mm-hmm. cities have tried to get us to focus on is the same thing as preparing for other types of emergencies. But I think that it also mm. it speaks to, you know, we visit and participate in institutions all the time that are not our homes and our immediate families, our immediate families. And so having like asking the question of what they're doing to be prepared, like your children's schools or your library or your community center um, places like that that are, you could ask the question, help to bring, a, support a conversation around resilience building and having a plan in case those institutions aren't ready. I think that's important as well as what you said earlier about knowing the people around you and who might need extra help. I think there's also some important communications tools that the, that the government or public agencies can also support to help bring messages to people who may be less well-connected, Um, or who may just be getting their information uh, through the news.
1: Patrick O'Neill, one of the lessons of Katrina was don't expect the government to be there. People need to be uh, kind of prepared on their own for, I think, people now say, what, five days? used to be three days. Mm -hmm. So what can we expect from government in a crisis in in the Bay Area?
5: I mean, I think even if you don't use the Katrina example, even if you have a government Mm -hmm. that is proactively planned, you still have to plan on being on your own because you don't know what this disaster is going to look like. Um, I I think of, you know, my my team and I were just back in New York last week looking at some some of the recovery efforts from Sandy still. And in Red Hook in Brooklyn, you know, they had one of the largest public housing projects there, and they had buses outside ready to evacuate people. So the city had done their part, mm-hmm. but no one got on those buses because mm-hmm. it wasn't messaged properly. They didn't have community input. So I, I think even when you are well-prepared from a city standpoint, you're still, you're still never going to be perfect. And, so, and I think people need to realize that and realize that no matter how well we do this, we're still going to have this period where we're on our own and, and need to lean on each other.
1: I'm a Do the people in Richmond, Vallejo, the communities you're involved with, are they, are they look, do they expect the government to no.
5: come? No, no, <laughs> <Yeah. They laughs> no. You know, a
1: lot of us <laughs> don't
4: expect the government to come. We're, we're very, you know, self-autonomous, we try to invest in the resources we need to sustain ourselves, and so a lot of people are individually taking on this thing around just being prepared on for themselves. And so that's what most people think. Um, I do think the aftermath, people want to see where. what's the aftermath look like. After it's all said and done, I survived, I'm here, what are the resources available? How is my insurance going to kick in? How is that going to help me? You know, how's, um, how can I, What other resources are available? So I think that part of education needs to be more embedded versus, like, people are going to be prepared for what they need to prepare for.
1: Laura Tam, uh, resilience also has some upsides, lots of good things, positives can be created. Uh, one example is restoring wetlands, which are natural bumpers and buffers that can protect from storm surge uh, and actually restore ecosystems. So tell us about some of the ways that if this is done right, that there's some really positive things could be done. It's not just about less bad.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, resilience looks like a better city where more people... Can afford to live there and have better health and and all the good things that you'd want to see we, we would have greener streets we would be able we would have more trees we would have um, wetlands that are sustained on the shoreline we would there's a lot we would have renewable energy i mean there's a lot of positive sides of resilience. The challenge is figuring out how to finance and, and scale it up. Um, I think with respect to the wetlands that you mentioned, you know we have lost over ninety percent of the wetlands that used to fringe San Francisco Bay. And there's been a big effort over the last 10 years to figure out how much we need to restore to sort of save the bay in a way. And um, looking at, more recently, looking at the impact of climate change on those wetlands it looks like we have to speed that restoration effort up quite significantly and we need to buy many more thousands of acres and restore them to tidal function if we want to maintain the bay's adaptive capacity. So there is a lot we can do and there's actually an effort um, in all nine counties at some point to pay as a region for wetland restoration to help both protect us from future flooding as well as to restore the. Our sort of natural heritage.
1: There's a plan for that to be on the ballot in the nine counties yeah. in 2016, a small parcel tax to fund wetland restoration mm-hmm. that kind of uh, provides some buffers uh, for for communities. I want to go to our, uh, our lightning round and ask each of you a uh, wow. yes or no question. Um, we're talking about resilience at Climate One at the, at the Exploratorium today. Uh, Niall Malloy, people who contributed least to climate change Could be hurt most by its impacts? Yes or no?
4: I'll say yes or
1: no. (laughs) Laura Tam, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, a state agency that regulates the the Bay waterfront, caved to property developers who don't want rising seas to impact their business. Some rules were rewritten. Do I
3: have to answer this in one word? (laughs) Um, I would say no.
1: Okay. I would say no. Uh, Patrick Odellini, San Francisco should construct new buildings in the bay along the Embarcadero <laughs> to protect existing property and generate funds for defending downtown. No. <laughs> One idea out there is to sort of basically do a Hong Kong move and create some new property which protects the piers. Certainly, I don't think the exploratorium would like that. Uh, uh, but, Patrick Odellini, while we're on that, um, What's the status of the piers now? Are they defended? You know, there's seismic, there's a seawall underneath San Francisco's waterfront. Uh, Is that as strong as it should be for earthquakes and sea level rise?
5: Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, we we happen to be sitting a couple of hundred yards away from what I consider the Achilles heel in San Francisco. Um, We have a seawall that most people don't even know about because you rarely see it, and it runs pretty much from Aquatic Park down to AT&T Park. And it's 100 years old. It's not ready for an earthquake not ready for sea level rise. Even now, and when we have some of our king tides or big storms, we see inundation on the Embarcadero. It's got every major utility passing through it. Oh, yeah, and it's also got the BART Transbay, Tube that takes hundreds of thousands of people in and out of San Francisco every day. So, I mean, if you talk about one piece of infrastructure where we start to see it hit every box on the hazard list, it's our city's seawall.
1: How much does it cost to fix it?
5: I mean, back of the napkin sketch, I think we we're talking about 4 to $6 billion. So it's very real money to, to do a piece of infrastructure like this.
1: And where's that money come from?
5: Well, I was hoping we were going to get a grant from Climate One, but I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Over 20 years. Yeah. Over 20. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back to that thing in the, in the
1: uh, um, uh, Laura Tam, property developers will have expanded responsibilities in the era of rising seeds. Yes. Uh, they will embrace those responsibilities wholeheartedly. No.
3: In the Bay Area, we are not debating the existence of climate change. If we, can, if we can scale up the capital planning guidelines that Patrick talked about so that people can know kind of what they're building and what to plan for based on what they're building, I would say that they would have no problem with that.
1: Patrick Otelini, a stronger role for government will be necessary to adapt to severe weather and coastal disruption. Yes. Uh, Niall Malloy, wealthy people living on the hills far from the bay may think they're insulated from storm surges, floods, and other severe weather events. Yes. But their food gets to the store on roads that may be flooded and ports that may be disrupted. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'm answering. Um, Answer that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Patrick O'Dellini. the San Francisco Giants' $1.6 billion waterfront property development near the ballpark will add new meaning to the term splash zone.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Patrick O'Dolini, the Golden State Warriors' new arena will be a great venue for water polo. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Uh, Niall Malloy, if Oakland redevelops the Coliseum and Oracle Arena and waits a few years, it will have the waterfront sports complex city leaders have long wanted. Yes. Florida. All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's <laughs> up We're going to end on that point with the, how they do. I think they did pretty well.
2: And now, here's a Climate One Minute. To avoid or adapt to climate change, which strategy will best ensure our survival? Hunter Cutting of the nonprofit communications firm Climate Nexus believes we can and should focus on both. The more our communities have been tested by extreme weather events like Katrina and Sandy, the more we're learning to bounce back. And as Cutting points out, Americans have always seen change as the new normal. We are good at change. It's one of the signature characteristics of our species. It's, it's definitely part of the American fabric and the culture, is that we are very adaptable. Um, American ingenuity is not just a buzzword. It's, it's you can watch the last 200 years of our history and see it in action. So I think, you know, it's a bit of a balancing act, right? We're going to have to reduce emissions to avoid the catastrophic changes. And, and they're catastrophic. The temperature increase that we will see may not sound like much, like eight degrees may not sound like much, but that's about the amount of temperature change that we saw that ended the last ice age and would it have crocodiles live in the Arctic. I mean, so we, we really don't want to go there. Uh, you know, two degrees of temperature change. We can adapt to that much. Um, It's doable. So I think we have to do both. You have to mitigate to avoid the catastrophic and adapt to what we can't avoid. Adaptation is just going to be part of what we do now going forward in the future. Hunter Cutting of Climate Nexus spoke with Climate One in March of 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Exploratorium in San Francisco.
1: Let's talk about uh, Treasure Island. It's a uh, Unique place in the middle of the bay, Patrick Odellini. Uh, it's obviously going over a, a redo from a Navy base to a new community. Uh, it's, could that be a model for a resilient community? They've actually, I think, taxed themselves. Uh, well, there's no one out there yet. I mean, there's a few people out there mm-hmm. except kids playing Little League. But um, how is that a model for what a, what a new community might build and prepare for sea level rise and, and climate change and, and pay for it?
5: Aside from the fact that the Irish community is going to be very upset that you didn't mention Gaelic football on Treasure Island. Ah, uh, there's an rugby and about. Gaelic football, uh, yeah, No, I, some... th- I think we're starting to see lessons learned in, in, in Treasure Island and the way they're designing, especially at the shoreline, which I find fascinating. Um, you know, it's, it's about building this adaptable shoreline. So they're not going to build for 2100 today, but they're putting steps in place that... As the seas start to rise, you're going to be able to adapt that shoreline. And I think that's that's a unique thing. I think we don't really necessarily have that luxury on the San Francisco waterfront in all of its parts, but I think when you can have that like you do here or like you're starting to see out at the 100-point shipyard and at Candlestick Point, I mean, those are areas where you can think about the shoreline a little differently and you can look at more things like wetland restoration or uh, adaptable berms or adaptable shorelines.
1: Now, although at Hunter's Point, they're building up 55 inches. They're planning... Uh, for flooding. They're gonna have no garbage trucks rolling around. They're gonna have these like vacuum tubes. It's kind of like the Jetsons out there where you put your, your trash in recycling. But there's a community that's gonna be well, pretty well positioned uh, relative to some older ones if they, if they do it right. Yeah, I mean, I believe
4: so. I mean, I, I work with a couple of community-based organizations who've been involved with the process of the transformation of area. Some pros and cons as that's developed out, but the reality sure. is it will be more resilient to more climate, climate impacts from that study point from sea level rise.
1: Yeah. But some of the people who are there may not there now may not be there then is there may what not be
4: there i mean you know the San Francisco is, you can talk a lot more about this, but, you know.
1: The housing. The yeah. housing. So issues. how is housing connected to to uh, you know, build re- responding to climate change? Because maybe people think that's a separate issue, but you think it's ought to be connected.
4: Well, I think, you know, it's kind of like a human rights issue. You know, people need to have a right to housing, healthy food, access to water. You know, we need to figure out what is something affordable to be in the Bay Area. I mean, out, outside of that, people are going to be moving out. And we see this trend over the last, you know, three or five years of people just being kicked out. Can't can't afford it, you know, moving further out, um, east, further north. Um, And that's just a reality of what's going on. I mean, San Francisco is probably one of the, I think, one of the richest places in the country by far right now. Um, And there's gaps, income level gaps. And so we think about bouncing back or being able to respond. You look at all those social inequities in that. You have that climate Concern. So it's a resilience issue in that traditional sense, like how you will be able to bounce back, you know, have the resources for it. But it's just also a growing trend that's happening in the city. I mean, and so climate change is going to keep coming, um, heat level, you know, all those different kinds of concerns, but the housing is, a, is an ongoing issue. And so there's a lot of organizations working towards to fix that.
1: Lord Tam, there's a term called managed retreat that people talk about, uh, mm-hmm. looking out for sea level rise and storm surges. And the idea is that some places will be defended, and some places will be abandoned. gradually, uh, we can't afford to protect everywhere. Uh, so, are some communities going to be protected more than others?
3: That's a great question. I don't, I don't, I don't think we've solved the question of there's not enough resources to protect everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've gotten to that point yet. And um, I think that there are some places, and you see a little of this happening now on the coastline where it's much more erosive and like places are completely unprotectable and they're going to fall into the sea and there's like a life safety threat there even today. Um, That's where managed retreat is a sensible tool now because you you can't protect it. There's nothing you can do in the face of of the ocean. On the Bay Shore, and especially in places where we have a lot of vulnerable communities, I think we have to take a protective approach. I think we have to figure out um, the ways that we can protect the most people. And I don't think it's the we've decided yet um, that we have to do any manage or treat in the Bay Area uh, right now. So we're not sure yet.
1: Uh, but Niall Malloy, uh, already there are people in the Central Valley who are walking away from their homes because oh, yeah. there's no water. Right. And that's affecting property values, and that's, that's happening now. So how far are we away from... Uh, you know, water starts to get into Richmond, Alameda, Vallejo, East Palo Alto, and there's no seawall and the government doesn't have the money or say it'll take 10 years to do it, and people are walking away from their homes.
4: So. I mean, Central Valley has a lot of challenges, and that's mm-hmm. one of the main issues of water. And then there's this kind of uh, antagonistic relationship between do you grow more, you know, and, and I don't have enough resources, um, and can people actually get livable water, drinkable water, and so I've been hearing a lot of different things about getting water trucked in and people just trying to basically get by. Um, they have showering centers. People need to go to take a shower. They have no, not run around in their homes. And so that manageable retreat thing is kind of happening because there is this thing or there's a, a reality that I think we're starting to fill with the climate issues that are there resources for these you know, these areas, these, you know, Central Valley in particular. So I think there's going to be an ongoing conversation They're trying to figure out how do we get more resources from the state to come to Central Valley. Um, There's a different couple of climate adaptation bills that came out recently. I'm not sure if that's going to really help safeguard that issue. Um, But at the end of the day, those are going to be ongoing concerns. I'm not sure if they can sustain the trucking in of water to support certain communities in the Central Valley. And
1: how, Patrick, how about in San Francisco? You have to assume that downtown's going to be protected. There's a lot of uh, money and power here, uh, but other parts of the city? and the city going to have to make some tough choices, even within the city, about areas? Who gets saved first? Who gets protected first? And who's at the end of the line? Is it going to be Hunter's Point and...
5: You know, I, I think managed retreat is never going to happen in San Francisco when you see the kind of property values that we have today. I think it's, it's, it makes mm-hmm. too much sense for people to hang on to that no matter what. Um, and, and so I think that looks very different. I also think that you layer over something like that with an earthquake. Um, that's where I get scared. That's where you see what happened in New Orleans. Some of you are familiar with the infamous Green Dot program, where basically they said, oh, because of where you sit in the floodplain, you know, we're not going to rebuild your community. How do you tell a community that you're not going to rebuild for them in the exact same space where they've mm-hmm. lived there their whole lives? That's an injustice. Mm-hmm. So I think managed retreat makes sense on paper for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think when you lay over that community aspect, you alienate too many people. And, and often it is a community that you do not want to alienate and that they can't afford to stay. And so managed retreat really means they're moving somewhere else.
1: So within the region, it's not, I mean, can this happen without wealth distribution? because Vallejo, East Palo Alto, they don't have enough money, so the money's got to come from outside, which means you're taking it from somewhere else. Is that going to happen with Patrick Ottolini within the Bay Area? Wealth distribution to save where the wealthier, more resourced regions help those who have fewer resources.
5: I mean, I think it just, it just begs the conversation that government has to be better about thinking about how we design policy around these issues. Um, you know, I currently oversee the city's soft story retrofit program, Um, This is a seismic program retrofitting apartment buildings that are all subject to rent control. So we know that if this building collapses in an earthquake, the new building is not subject to rent control. Uh, To give you an idea on the numbers, this ordinance is going to affect about 15% uh, 15 of our population, about 120,000 San Franciscans. So you think about that with an equity lens. You know, if we lose these buildings in an earthquake, we have 120,000 San Franciscans that previously enjoyed a rent-controlled status and now have to compete at market-rate rents that are the highest they've ever been in our history. Um, so I mean I think that's that's one of these interventions where you know yeah we're not doing wealth distribution around that but we're thinking about who's more vulnerable and especially in a in a city where seventy percent are renters and don't have the authority to make these decisions whether it's retrofitting a property that's where government has to play a very careful role but has to play that ultimate role of, of looking in the public's interest and the public good and design regulations around that.
1: After Katrina a lot of people obviously left uh, New Orleans and never came back. Uh, If that happened in San Francisco, people would never be able to buy their way back in, Patrick Otelini. So what is the city policy after a disaster? A lot of times the federal government wants to get people out. What's what's the plan here?
5: I mean, that's something I'm really excited about and that the mayor is uniquely focused on, is making sure that we keep 85 to 95 percent of our population here in San Francisco after a disaster. Uh, You're completely right. The The FEMA concept is evacuate, take control of the situation, let people come back. Well, guess what? People are barely hanging on right now in our apartments. And so if we have to relocate, state to Sacramento for six months, we're never moving back to the city. That's the reality of it. So what we have to do is we're faced with some really unique challenges. We're also a very dense city. We don't have a lot of open space. So the mayor's plan is very simple. It's to keep people in their homes whenever possible, if we can't keep people in their homes, keep them in their neighborhoods. And if we can't keep them in their neighborhoods, keep them in San Francisco. And I think that's, that's an approach that looks at a variety of different options. There's not one particular intervention that fixes that population problem. It's, it's a myriad of things. It's making sure that we're getting people, you know, their homes repaired quickly in some sort of a rapid repair style program like we saw after Sandy in New York. It's making sure that people have those lifelines to be able to come back. Mm-hmm. It's also making sure that maybe maybe you're going to be in a hotel for a while or you're going to be on a cruise ship for a while. I mean, these are, there's a lot of different ways to, to, to get bites at that apple, but I think that's, that's what we have to do. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach to disaster housing.
1: If you're just joining us, Patrick O'Dellini is the chief resilience officer of San Francisco. We're talking about building a strong Bay Area in the climate era at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club coming today from the San Francisco Exploratorium. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Niall Malloy, what lessons should be drawn from Sandy and Katrina about keeping people where they are, letting them uh, come back, and letting those communities um, bounce back from those disasters?
4: I mean, you know, this is the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, and, um, you know, I have still have friends who just couldn't come back, and that's just a reality. Um, not for any other... Not, maybe not even for financial reasons, just just the psychological trauma around it, uh, which was really interesting as well. And I think, you know, the ability to bounce back for some of these folks is just pretty much being, you know, the comfort of home, you know, a sense of home, place. I mean, for all of us, we have a place that we know that's really home. And so I think that is pretty much what draws people back. And they find ways to draw back, either staying with another relative, um, or trying to help rebuild if they have insurance or resources to help do that. Um, but I do think we need more kind of government support and interventions to make that possible, and I think you know, it needs to be planned out with the community to really be engaged in that process, because there obviously people having personal stories and experiences. I mean, there's things that we gravitate and learn from Sandy and Katrina, that people have very personalized issues that, need, that could enable him to come back. And so I think that needs to be communicated and trying to figure out what kind of policies or regulations can help shape that. And also how to bear in mind what resources there is available from the government to actually enable that to happen.
1: Laura, Tam, we've been talking about uh, kind of not enough water and, and droughts and, and heat. I want to talk about if El Nino continues to materialize in this uh, weather year and there's too much water. Yeah. Uh, what set of issues is that going to bring? Uh, we've been used to sort of not enough water. Uh, talk about too much water.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a different kind of disaster, uh, but it, it could very well happen. I mean... Well, the way that El Nino if we do get more precipitation in this El Nino and there's a chance that we won't I think you maybe have all seen that there's that there's a 50/50 chance that the the warm ocean the warm weather phenomenon is going to result in more rain or snow so assuming that we do get more storms and there's too much water there is uh, you know where the the rubbers going to meet the road so to speak on that problem is is along the bay where a lot of our the waterways meet the mouth of the bay. That's where the flood control channels mm-hmm. um, hit the, the sea. And oftentimes you have to deal with two problems at the same time, getting stormwater and rainwater out of places. Meanwhile, the bay is surging because we're having a storm mm-hmm. surge. So you have a hard time pushing that water out. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of things can be done right now to prepare and anticipate that these this kind of flooding could happen. There's, uh, you know, lots of places need to have the, the flood control channels all over the all over the region are full of trash and debris and um vegetation and trees and stuff that because people haven't had to they've been able to neglect them for the last few years um those things need to be cleared there needs fire to be will space. take care of that May, yeah. oh god <laughs> 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 one disaster or another right here, um, this is the happy hour yeah. here <laughs> kind <of point>. yeah. <laughs> um so well so those things need to happen and then um you know we need to all do a good job of being mindful of like the the vulnerabilities that exist when there are storms there's there's many people maintain and manage their own trees there's a lot of there's a lot of underinvestment in, in urban trees, and they are they can fall down and have limbs that drop and other things. There's also a lot that we could be a lot more that we could be doing over the long term to try to withhold the the rainwater further up in the landscape and in watersheds um, through green infrastructure and other treatments to the streets uh, that enable us to sort of reduce the flow that's coming out the flood control channels. So we can't really implement that very quickly this year, mm-hmm. but again we can. Uh, we can work on the, the flood control channels and making them as clear as we can. And in some places, like in East Palo Alto, they're talking about putting up inflatable dams along the creek um, mm-hmm. for extreme events.
1: Yeah. Laura Tam is a policy director at Spur. We're talking about resilience at the in the Bay Area. Uh, I was talking to a homeowner in Marin recently who said, uh, they, have, they live along a creek, and they wanted to get rid of some of the vegetation because of, they're worried about a fire. And then they thought, oh, well, if El Nino comes, that's going to make a flood worse. What do I do? Way these different things. What gives you hope? What are some bright spots? Before we go to audience questions, I want to ask each of you, what, what's either a place uh, where something's happening really smart, where there's real progress being made, where you can say, ah, that's where we need to go, that there's an inspiring person or direction? Laura Tam.
3: Yeah, I always want I always come back to um, San Francisco Creek, which is a mm-hmm. creek that is on the border of Santa Clara County and San Mateo County and it there was a disastrous flood in 1998 I think and um, and it, it Agencies and people realized that having a creek that's sort of between two counties and a bunch of different cities, like, it was not being well-managed, and there was a lot of flooding, and a lot of it was in East Palo Alto, which is a vulnerable, socially vulnerable mm-hmm. community. So they formed a joint powers authority among all of the cities and counties to try to develop some planning for the creek, and they've done an incredible job of trying to realign the creek channel and to do, actually reduce enough... Um, to do a bunch of rest, wetland restoration in the Bay where the creek meets the Bay and to move around some levees in that area to not only provide a bunch of wetland restoration but also to enable a bunch of vulnerable homes behind that levee to have to not participate in the National Flood Insurance Program because they would no longer be vulnerable to extreme flooding. So I think that's a really bright spot. I like to raise that up or that that particular project all the time. And, um, you know, I think that it sets a great example for the Bay Area. Now, Malloy,
4: bright spots. Well, I'm just happy. I think just the social resilience. I'm really excited about how people are collectively coming together, talking about these issues around climate change and how people are prepared about it. And um, uh, we've been forming a regional collaborative uh, called a Resilience Community Initiative, which is several uh, community-based organizations looking at equity throughout the region and trying to figure out the different priorities, you know, from you know the planning to the development of programs and policy to also the implementation and the funding streams coming from the state, and how we can actually um, center, the, center the gravity around how they can support equity-related issues. So I'm really excited about the continuity and the hope and the passion around that, and also what's being developed from that community perspective, like being prepared, being ready, and uh, deepening into the climate
5: change discussions.
1: Patrick Otolini, any ideas, uh, bright spots outside the city of San Francisco? You can say about how great San Francisco's doing, but anyone Well, i got to include us a little bit. One
5: one of of the things that I'm really excited about, which I think you'll see more in 2016, is this idea of doing a regional design competition, looking at the bay and looking at the infrastructure that butts up to the bay. Um, This is an effort that We've been working uh, in the city of San Francisco, but also other cities in the region, and Spur has been a partner uh, working with uh, Rebuild by Design, the nonprofit that helped run a lot of design competitions after Sandy, to say, okay, let's talk about this from a community perspective. Because earlier, as you kind of jokingly mentioned, this kind of Hong Kong idea of building out into the bay, um, you know, obviously anything that we talk about at this waterfront is going to be highly contentious and very political. But guess what? If it's the community driving the design and we have a, a unified voice on that, well, then suddenly that, that those politics start to become decoupled and that becomes less contentious. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited because we, we've, we've given ourselves paralysis when we talk about these big pieces of infrastructure because they're really hard issues to deal with. Mm-hmm. But if we start to get the community involved around that and get that critical mass, all of a sudden we have a plan to move forward and the financing just becomes the last piece.
1: Naim Alloy, uh, one Example of that in Richmond is the Greenway. Tell us about that and how it's doing multiple things at once, making a place better.
4: Well, the Richmond Greenway is kind of a old kind of what's it? Train track. that actually been developed out, and basically is a lot of community-based organizations are pitching in. They're growing food. They have bioswales. Um, They're talking about climate change. It's youth ran youth-engaged, and they go through training and curriculum. And they the core aspects of it is about how to be more resilient, how to make Richmond more resilient and use this as pretty much a pilot site of what actually can enable it to be happening um, in the community. And so it's just really getting a lot of life of itself, you know, working with city, government, you know, the health department uh, and nonprofits, and they recently got some state funding, some Prop $84 to help um, streamline that project for the next few years, and so it has a lot of energy. Um, And they've been having a lot of kind of training there, and the city of Richmond is actually doing their climate action planning processes, and so the interconnections with that cadre of folks working on bikes, public transit, um, green urban agriculture, and things like that. It's just good lifeblood and talking about climate in that mix.
1: We're talking about uh, <laughs> getting ready for climate change in the Bay Area with Laura Tam from Spur, Niall Malloy, from the, formerly from Communities for a Better Environment, and Patrick Odellini from the city of San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
0: Hi. So. Thank you so much. It's been a really great presentation. I've been following a lot of the adaptation work going on at the state level. And we have the executive order that came out with Governor Brown back in April that had a lot of great targets on greenhouse gas reductions, but also about how the state could become more resilient. We've had three, as Niles mentioned, three bills go through the legislature now on the governor's desk, being hopefully going to be signed soon. Also trying to implement and move forward on... Implementing the strategies the state has come up with on adaptation planning, but they lack funding. And I'm curious, one, if you guys have been tracking the bills or the executive order, how you see those touching down in the Bay Area, and two, if you're thinking about funding streams for resilience work, especially the natural infrastructure, which is mentioned in both the executive order and two out of three of these bills, how's this gonna come to the Bay Area?
1: Patrick Otolini, Sacramento, going to save us, help us? Of course.
5: No, I, I think it's um, I think it's something to think about. Where you know, not only do we have these these very aggressive bills that have been put forward in a very good way, um, but I also think you're starting to see efforts at the federal level affect efforts at the state level. And what I mean by that is the National Disaster Resilience Competition, where HUD has put forth a billion dollars to help cities that have been affected, or help, excuse me, uh, entities that have been affected by disaster. In this case, the California, the state of California, is one of those entities, and we've been assisting the governor's office on this. Now, does that mean we get money here? In in the Bay Area, if we do that application right, yes, mm-hmm. because what states are being asked to do is leverage funds in a way. So this grant is paying for some of these funds, but it's also the state putting their money where their mouth is. And that's looking very different across the, the, the country because sometimes we have counties that are that entity, sometimes it's a city, but in this case it's the state of California. Um, so, so to do something like that where there is a billion dollars at the table um, suddenly becomes very real money that we have access to.
1: Another money piece of this, Patrick O'Dolini, is your position and uh, uh, 99 others around the country were created by the Rockefeller Foundation. So Mm -hmm. tell us how philanthropists are coming in and and providing money to cities to hire people, create new positions that didn't exist and they couldn't pay for. And what are some of the um, tensions around that? I think think it's also
5: important to note uh, that that it's it's 100 cities around the world. So we have this incredible juxtaposition of cities that are are facing tremendously different resilience challenges but what's amazing is meeting my counterparts in these other cities and having these conversations with them, it ultimately boils down to some very similar core issues. And so I think that's been the the interesting dynamic that's coming around that. Now... Uh, the grant itself uh, you know, pays for a chief resilience officer for two years and also helps the city develop a resilience strategy. Um, so I'm actually out of grant funding as of, August, or as of April 1st, so I'll be the first CRO that, that runs out of grant funding because I was the first one appointed. And, and I think what you're seeing the city of San Francisco now is to say, we found value in this position, and they're absorbing that into the budget and creating a place for that to live. Um, you know, with my existing position that already I already have staff, I already have a budget. So it's, a, it's not as big of a lift for the city as it is in some. Mm-hmm. And some cities, you're asking them to totally change the way they've done government. Who is this, this, this voice that's an agitator, this voice that's an advocate? Um, how do we incorporate that? And so I think that'll look very different around the world. And I think we'll see some cities embrace it and build programs to support the CRO. I think we'll see others that that say two years was great. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the grant dollars. See you later. And what does this open in terms
1: of philanthropists being coming into government and saying, we want this to happen and we're going to pay for it? What kind of accountability and governance question does that?
5: I mean, it's a very difficult tension and it's something that we see every single day and we try to balance it out in a really smart way. But I mean, you have Uh, On one side, government systems sometimes are are clunky and clumsy, and things like procurement, going through the RFP process, can be very onerous and take two years before you actually get starting on the work that you wanted to do two years prior. So I think philanthropy can play a role in accelerating that and helping us jumpstart a lot of projects through those dollars. But I also think there has to be a tremendous balance. I I think our job as public servants is to be that watchdog and make sure that the public sector is not for sale. Um, so I think trying to balance that out is is a, is a very tricky thing. It's probably one of the hardest things that I have to do. Um, and I think every city is starting to figure out how to do that in their own way. And that and that really speaks to the goals of that particular city and what and what's really in their in their hearts when they start to
3: do this work.
1: Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One Explorium today.
3: It seems to me there's like a gambler's fallacy at play here, where where you chase good money after bad, um, particularly FEMA funds when. The, the overall sea level and, and trends are punctuated by individual episodic events. So, in Pacifica, we spent millions of dollars armoring cliffs that not only ruin the beach for walking, but are now just sitting there ready to gnaw away when the next good storm comes in. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, yeah, FEMA is is designed to put back what was there and to protect us for to let us give us information about today's risk. It's not about future risk. So they're looking at, like, the 100-year storm of today. They're not looking at the 100-year storm of tomorrow, which includes another 12 or 36 inches of sea level rise. So I think that we have to have, like, a pretty intensive national policy conversation about what to do about the fact that some of our institutions are not set up to rebuild with resilience in mind.
1: Patrick Olini, is it going to take some really bad Bay Bridge falling down kind of event before people reach into their pockets and and, uh, pony up the cash that's needed?
5: Uh, well, FEMA is rarely accused of being um, innovative or forward-thinking, mm-hmm. and, and, and so I, I think that uh, we start to see different responses from the federal government side where they actually start to deserve a lot of credit, because there's been some great voices in FEMA after oh, Sandy, yeah, like folks right. like Brad Gehr, who who ultimately took this concept that, guess what, it's going to be cheaper to make someone's house habitable than to put them up in a hotel or put them up in a shelter. So what they were able to do, normally that would be covered under what FEMA considers personal assistance. So it would be helping the homeowner. Well, guess what? It's actually helping the public. So it was under public assistance, which is the government financing stream. So it didn't affect that FEMA payout that that homeowner ultimately got. And they were able to leverage funds from the city to repair those homes we all know the advantages of being back in your own bed. You may not have power. You may not have hot water, but you're at home. I mean, that's a, psychologically, that's a really big improvement. So I think to see them be forward-thinking in that way, and I mean, when we're talking about these federal regulations, I mean, if you ever read the, Strap, the Stafford Act? I mean, this is, this is something that is, is not very flexible. So I think, I think to be able to be in an organization like that that's notorious for being so rigid and to come up with these innovative programs is, is, is a breath of fresh air, and I'm really excited to see what they're doing at that level.
1: Let's go to our next question at Climate One.
5: Um, you guys mentioned things about, um, you know, upgrading infrastructure and making sure that, you know, everything that we need to get the resources that we need, you know, be it water or, you know, even roads for transport. Um, we need to upgrade those things, but um, exactly how much effort and how much, um, I guess, willpower is there right now towards getting those infrastructure upgrades and the materials required to get those things done and in place um, How can we drive those things more towards environmentally preferable purchasing? Dr. Kotelin? Yeah, I think when we're trying to do those those particular types of investments, yeah, it's a political will question. And I think the politicians are going to do what the people who elected those politicians, you know, say. And so I think that's... Or that's the people
1: who pay for their campaigns. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I
5: think that's... But that's the public dialogue, right? And I think that's where we get to hold our elected officials accountable and hold our policymakers accountable. Uh, in San Francisco, I think we, we have a, some... Part of the reason why our procurement process takes so long is because I think we've been very diligent in adding those kind of checks and balances along the way. So I ultimately think once you get through that turmoil, you actually have a great product to go forward. But I think, you know, we can do things in, on the government side to try to streamline that as well. So I think this is a, a balance that we're always struggling with to get just right. So
1: as we end here, uh, last word for what an individual can do either to kind of reduce climate change or get ready for the impacts. Laura Tam, what, what's the takeaway for an individual? What kind of person listening to this, one thing they should do after they stop listening to this program?
3: Vote. Um. <laughs> you took mine. Yeah, sorry. I think that's one of the most important things. Vote and then um, you know, spread the message. I think it's really many people are actually, the, the drought has ex, has accelerated in terms of what people ca- are starting to care about water issues much more than they ever did. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you have bad attention it, it could create some public change but talking to people about it and spreading the word is a really important message.
4: Now, Malloy, I'll say the same thing like community organizing, uh, really engaging your neighbors and other folks about these issues and um, and voting. I mean, I was going to say the same exact thing, I swear. <laughs> um, so I think those kind of two critical things. We've got to hold our elected officials accountable. and We need to get the right people in office and the right people in staff positions to really represent the will of the change that we see in the future. And that's really happening right now. So I just really think those are kind of the two main issues.
5: Patrick o Lee. I mean, living in San Francisco, so often we don't know our neighbors, and so to kind of steal both of your answers, I think that's, that's something that's so important. Um, I, I think back to, to when I first moved to my, my current neighborhood about 10 years ago, uh, it wasn't unfortunately until there was a drive-by shooting on my block where I actually got to know my neighbors. Mm-hmm. And that's not a unique thing. Tragedy brings us together all the time, mm-hmm. and unfortunately sometimes that's what it takes, and so it's a real challenge to try to do that with the absence of that tragedy. So one thing, go introduce yourself to your neighbors.
1: Great place to close. We've been talking about building stronger communities in the Bay Area at Climate One today here at the San Francisco Exploratorium with Patrick Odellini, Chief Resilience Officer in San Francisco, Niall Malloy, formerly with the Communities for a Better Environment, and Laura Tam with Spur. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to this another other Climate One podcast on our website, climateone.org. And I'd like to thank our audience here in the room, our funders from the San Francisco Foundation and the Seed Fund, and all those listening on KQED and other stations, thank you all for coming and listening today. Good job. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.